Hi there, and welcome to the Grief and Rebirth podcast. I'm your host, author and trauma survivor, Irene Weinberg, here to encourage you wherever you are in your healing journey. In each episode, I chat with incredible grief and trauma specialists, healers, mediums, and celebs, as well as remarkable people who have inspiring healing stories to share. If you're looking for a podcast that's both uplifting and inspiring, you've found it. Let us help you find your joy in life. Hi, everyone. I'm Irene Weinberg, the creator and host of Grief and Rebirth podcast, inviting you to join us for what is going to be another uplifting, very interesting interview. It truly is my pleasure to share the enlightened insights of gifted healers, grief and trauma specialists, mediums, and amazing people with their powerful healing stories that inspire and motivate us. You can see the full show notes and all Grief and Rebirth podcast episodes on IreneWeinberg.com. And make sure to follow us and like us on social at at Irene S. Weinberg on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Today's interview with Katie Arnold will surely inspire and motivate those of you who feel knocked over by life, feel the pull of something bigger and wilder within, or have a passion for running, especially in marathons. Katie is a contributing editor at Outside Magazine and her Raising Rippers column about bringing up adventurous outdoor children appears monthly on Outside Online. She has written for the New York Times, Travel and Leisure, Runner's World, Elle, and many others. Katie is also an accomplished ultra runner who is the 2018 Leadville Trail 100 Run Women's Champion. Her new memoir, titled Running Home, details her inspiring journey through grief during her father's terminal diagnosis and death, as well as how ultra running and a practice of mindfulness helped Katie move through her very difficult life challenges towards healing. Katie, welcome to Grief and Rebirth Podcast. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Me too. I'm so glad to have you, and I'm really looking forward to what's going to be a wonderful interview. My first question is about your dad. We cannot start without talking about your dad, who was so integral to who you now are. So tell us, please, about your dad, your relationship with him, and how he introduced you to the love of running when you were a mere seven years old. Yeah, it's so great to start with my dad, because he, as you said, he's really the fundamental sort of uh, piece in the story. I mean, People have said, oh, this is a running book. It's a grief book, but it's also very much a father-daughter memoir. And um, so my father was a National Geographic photographer for his life, um, you know, his, his career, more than 30 years. And he had this incredible um, spirit of both wanderlust and curiosity. Um, and he was the one who really taught me how to see the world and to be a very open-eyed, curious observer. And, you know, as photographers are, that they, you know, they keep their eyes open to capture those moments in life that we so often miss. And so just by being around him, I saw how important it is to 
be observant and to be engaged in the world and, and to look for signs and images. And, um, you know, my medium has always been words and his is, was photographs. And I knew from a very young age that I wanted to be a writer. But still, his way of seeing the world and capturing it rubbed off on me and inspired me. And so first and foremost, he inspired me as a creative person. Um, you know, he always had his camera. He was always, he never had to be the center of attention. He was sort of always on the periphery watching. He was like the observer. He was the observer. And um, boy, that's an important skill and gift in life um, and something that we should all cultivate more because so much is going on around us and so often we miss it especially now with our phones and all our devices and we're, you know, we're just not always present. So he really was like an accidental Zen master, I think, in my life. The other big thing my father did in terms of, you know, being so influential to me was sharing his love of the outdoors with me. Um, and he was not an outdoor athlete, like he didn't compete, but he was, um, just an explorer, as you would imagine, as a National Geographic photographer. So he just loved to be out in the world, in nature. We would, when I spent time with him, my parents um, separated and divorced when I was very young. So I didn't live with my father, but we spent quite a bit of time each year with him. And whenever we were with him, we would always be out walking in the woods, rambling around. You know, at the time, it's the sort of things that kids, you know, it's sort of boring. You're out hiking. But I never felt that way because I just was really grateful for the time I got with him because I didn't get very much. So the two things, my love of my father sort of spread into my love and informed my love of nature because they were so entwined. It was where I was with him. And, um, and so I learned that being outside was sort of my happy place. And Partially, too, it was because, you know, the divorce was complicated. I didn't understand it. Um, divorce was so different then. Kids really didn't know what was going on. And it changed so much about that. It changed so much. And, um, you know, I had a new step family and just, there was just, you know, it's complicated when you're little. I was five or six. And so um, I, I always went outside. That's where I went to sort of feel like myself. And to maybe step outside of the complicated, you know, circumstances of my pulled out of the drama, get out of the drama. So I went outside, and I always found solace there, and and that's been a huge piece of my life since I was young. I, you know, I think the poet Mary Oliver said, like, I don't like to be inside. I don't like to be cooped up, and that's really, I think of that because that's really how I am. And then, you know, your other point was how my father introduced me to running. When I love this story and I tell it in the chapter, in an early chapter in my book, Running Home, is that, um, you know, as I mentioned, my father was not an athlete. He was very active, but he wasn't competitive. He was not a runner. So he was not trying to like, he didn't have any ambitions for me to become a runner. It was just an idea, a lark. One day we were at visiting his farm in Virginia where he lived. We lived in New Jersey, my sister and I, and he just suggested it. You know, hey, there's this local 10K race. Um, do you want to run it? And it was like the most foreign concept because I, though I was always a very active child, as I said, happiest when I was in motion outside, I didn't run. I wasn't a runner. And it was a very different time, you know, before adults or parents were sort of foisting their ambitions on their kids or helicoptering their athletic careers and you know because I wanted to spend time with my dad and I'm sure I wanted to kind of impress him and um 
you know, win him back and whatever deep psychology that was as a kid? I said, yes. And my sister and I, we had no business running 6.2 miles on a wow. <laughs> seven years old in fact we didn't really run it probably we walked a lot there was probably some limping and staggering and anyway the bottom line is we made it and when we crossed the finish line also it should be noted and I tell this in the book my father was not running it with us he was at the finish line with his camera of waiting, course of course <laughs> waiting to capture the moment and so when the finish line came into view and there was my father, right? The two will always be linked, finishing something big that you didn't think was possible and, and my father there at the end. And his sort of admiration for sure, but also disbelief that we had done it. And it really kind of seared into me how that um, great you know, suffering that went on in the race, I mean, suffering is it was a different kind of suffering it was you know a seven-year-old trying to get through six miles but you know that the perseverance is so important and when you do something that you think you can't do or seems impossible and you finish no matter what style you do it in I mean we probably dragged ourselves across the finish line the feeling of accomplishment sticks with you and it and that was so formative in my life that the hard things are valuable he taught you to persevere he taught us to persevere and he, you know, he was always, you know, he, he didn't, he was not a fan of quitting, you know, and he was like, he told us that outright. Many things he didn't tell us outright, we just sort of picked up because he wasn't that person who would just get in your face and say, this is how to do it. And this is what to do. It was more, he was guiding us. And, um, but that was such a formative moment in my life. From then on, I identified as a runner and not even competitively because I only, I didn't join any teams but I would just run that one race um, every year and saw, you know, and with my dad at the finish line. But I, in my mind, I was a runner. And so he gave me that gift. And then the best thing he did for the running was then he did not insert himself into and start to think, push me to compete or do X or Y. He stepped back to let me have my own relationship with running. And for me, running has always been a creative process. It's really how I write when I move my body, I move my imagination. And so he, because he didn't ever push me to compete or join any teams, I could run the way I wanted to run. And so I think that's why I've had this lifelong relationship with running. And I write about that in my column for Outside, that when it's intrinsic for kids, when it comes from within and it's this desire they have for themselves, not that someone's telling them to do. It's so much more powerful and true, and it lasts. That's absolutely true. I mean, just really briefly from my own life, I was very musical. And, I, and um, when I was seven, my father said, you're very musical. Would you, um, you, what would you like to do? And I said, I'd like to play the piano or dance. He said, we have a violin in the house. So I ended up taking the violin, but it was never my passion. Just what you just said, because it wasn't what was coming from inside of me. Yeah. And I think that's really such a deep theme in the book is that if it's, if it's in you and you can hear it, right, the intuitive voice is so strong and has so many answers. But oftentimes we like by the time we're, you know, grownups, adults, we've stopped listening to that voice and we're listening to like the shoulds in our head or like deadlines or our phones. Right. And so right. grief in a way was this great gift for me because it enabled me to tune in again to that voice, which always leads you in the right direction. If you Absolutely. Know. So talking about that, 
you grew into an adult daughter while also being a new mom who was battling a postpartum anxiety <clears throat> diagnosis. How did you keep it all together when everything in your life seemed to be falling apart? Well, yeah, it's complicated. I mean, I, the anxiety came um, right. And I identify with anxiety, and I'm sure a lot of the people on the podcast identify with anxiety. So the anxiety really came, like my, um, just the chronology was that I, in 2010, the summer of 2010, <clears throat> I was in my mid-30s, I gave birth to my second daughter. And um, she was maybe two months old when I learned that my father had terminal right. cancer. And so it was that mashup, right, that just kind of collision of this birth, which is great joy, but there's also a lot of transition in your body and your hormones and the grief of, of knowing that my father's time was very limited. And so those two things together just kind of snowballed into this um, grief and anxiety response. And so the, I didn't know this at the time, and I've since learned it, but that you know, my grief manifested as anxiety. It really, like I was convinced I was dying too. And I didn't know that that was not uncommon. I didn't know that it was, you know, that many people do take on the symptoms and physical feelings that the, their loved one who is dying has. And, and it makes sense now to understand that I'm taking it on as like, I'm the blur, the boundaries are blurred, right? And I'm absorbing, and I've been so close to my father that now I feel like I'm living his story. It's all tangled up, but so really, like I was traveling back and forth from my home in Santa Fe, <clears throat> where I had a two-year-old daughter and my husband, and I was, my father had this diagnosis, and it was pretty clear early on that, he, you know, he was dying as quickly as my new baby was growing, right? And so we had to be, I had to go back a lot, and I brought Maisie, my infant, with me because, of course, I was nursing. So she and I, every month or a few weeks, would fly to Virginia. And each time I went, like, I was, I was so glad to be with my father, but it was such a heavy feeling of being in that house, watching him decline so rapidly. And I began to feel grief as a physical sensation. And I didn't know that either. Like, I always thought grief was this emotional state, but it really, for me, is so physical, which I think, and we'll get to this later, why I think running was so helpful, because running is obviously so physical. But I would go and I felt like I had this layer of grief on me, like a weight. Or I thought that, and it felt like a scratchy film on my skin. Like I wanted to just scrape it off. And even one time I came back from a visit um, to Virginia and I went up to this, you know, fancy Japanese health spa on the mountain here in Santa Fe. And I went and I signed up for one of those exfoliation treatments where they rub salt all over your body. I mean, literally salt in the wound. And then they scrub you. And I thought I, I had this delusion that that would take off my sadness. Right? You're just in this, grief is such an altered state. And I thought I could scrape it off. And, you know, I, at the end of the treatment, she rinsed me down and I stood up and I was like, oh, it's still there. It's still there. It's still there. And so then when my father died, um, it was not even 12 weeks from his diagnosis to his death. And it, so it was so fast like a runaway train. And I remember thinking when he died, I had this moment, I was at the farm with my stepmom. And I had this moment where I thought, oh, it was relief, right? 
that relief you feel when someone you've loved has been suffering and isn't anymore, but also a little bit of selfish relief, like for me, oh, this is going to end. And then just as quickly, I had that voice inside of like, oh, this is just the beginning. And it really was. And so from his death, I went into this period of very acute anxiety of that I was dying. And I could hear a news report about a rare disease or a friend of a friend of a friend had X disease or something happening. And I would manifest those symptoms. Like I would feel that in my body. And I'd never had that before. You know, I didn't have a history. I had a history of worry, like as a, I think as a child of divorce, going back and forth between families. Traumatized in a way you didn't even know. You know, that's that dislocation. And I think worry is a kind of dislocation too. You're just not at always at home in yourself. And, but this anxiety was totally new, you know, and I had new, this new, this baby. And also I think motherhood really triggers that worry, right? You know, as a mother and all of a sudden you realize, wow, the stakes are so much higher. Like I cannot die because I have these tiny babies. And then, um, yeah. And and it was also like kind of crash into midlife. You know, I was coming up to 40 and when you realize like, oh, you like mortality is real. Like I am mortal too. So it was all those things together that just made um, this really turbulent time of um, anxiety where I was just, you know, gripped by it the whole for But somehow you made it through that, <clears throat> even though your skin was like crawling and, and you had all these sensations, which is amazing. I had tingling, which, you know, I've since learned is stress leaving the body, but my head was tingling and I'm like, oh my God, I have a brain tumor. You know, it was like, and, and because I'm a writer or maybe this is, maybe I'm a writer because I have such a vivid imagination. But anyway, I have always had a great imagination and that serves me really well as a writer, but it also can be a downfall when you've got, and your mind goes away, worry mind, right? So I'm like, oh, this must be this. And I think being a child of divorce too, like you're always looking, like you're a little detective. You're trying to trying to understand and put your world together and make sense of it. So I used those same detective skills on like weird sensations in my body. And, you know, that was not a good idea because I'd be conflating these feelings. And anyway, it was grief. It really was grief, but it felt like I was dying. But that's even wonderful in a way for our listeners to hear because some of them may be grieving and they're having these sensations (laughs) and they're like, oh, that's what it is. And speaking of this anxiety, I know, and you just sort of touched on it. How did your dad's terminal diagnosis and death lead to the unfolding and processing of family secrets, which was a part yeah. of society? Well, right. And so this is in the book. Um, a big theme in the book is sort of what I learned about my father after he died. And um, my father, what, because of his work as a photographer, he obviously left this incredible body of photographs. He was a documentarian, right? That was what he did. He was a photojournalist. But he also was an incredible writer, prolific letter writer, kept journals and notebooks, did videos, audios. He used to, when we were kids, carry around one of those Panasonic you know, tape recorders that was like half the size of a suitcase. And he, he would just put it on the table and press record. And he would just document our lives with him and his life. And so he left behind just kind of this amazing archive of work and thinking and writing. And, um, and so I really, after he died, my sister and I went through his office and my stepmother was so generous and gave us total access and freedom. And 
Um, and I really, in many ways, learned who he was after he died. And some of the things we discovered were painful and not what we've known. And I won't go into that here because it's um, sort of a big part of the book. But yeah, everyone, you have to read it in the book. Okay. <laughs> but um, there were many things I hadn't known. But I think the great gift of it is, um, first of all, it was a kind of healing to go back and I took a lot of time. Like I couldn't have sat down right away. It was all there in his office labeled and marked and he wasn't hiding anything, which is also such a gift, right? He was very transparent with his, you know, his material. And I think honestly, he was, he was working on a memoir and, and he had never said that outright in his, in those words, but I knew he was working on his photographs. He'd spent 20 years trying to digitize and edit them and he was doing a lot of writing and so he'd left it all he ran out of time but he wanted it you know it to be orderly and so um but the night he died I remember I went down to his office I just wanted to feel him and I thought I felt that he was still his it's close in the house there was something of him and so I went down into his office where he'd spent, you know, 15 years of his retirement laboring over his images, which are just some of the most beautiful photographs. And um, I felt him down there, definitely. And I started to open some notebooks and right away some things jumped out that were painful and just, you know, on the night of his death, just like a gut punch. And, and I remember I set them down and I realized then, you know, not even consciously, but that I knew that I would go through his material, but I would do it slowly, right? Because it's, I was so in grief and so raw and the death was so fresh. And even as I went back a few months later and then after that to help my stepmother, I, I never sat down systematically and went through everything. I sort of picked up things here and there very organically and listening to that intuition and the result is this beautiful unfolding of my father's life in the years after he died. So in a way, I, I, could, I read what I, and I found what I could find when I could find it, right? So that by the time I was really reading the harder stuff, time had gone by. So I must have intuitively known to give myself some space. And I, I think that that was a gift. And again, it was not a conscious decision. Um, but, you know, it's beautiful to find those things, and they there can be some bombshells. Truth or can. You want to be gentle with yourself, for sure, in finding them. Yeah, yeah. I can really identify with that. Thanks, Katie. We are going to take a quick break right now to allow a minute for our sponsors who keep this podcast free for our listeners. We'll be right back. We're back. Thanks for tuning in to my really special interview today with Katie. Let's continue on, Katie, with this question. What is the difference between running a marathon and being an elite ultra runner? Yeah, okay. So running a marathon, um, 26.2 miles, right? Mo many, many, you know, when people think of marathons, they're thinking of the ones that are run on roads, right? So road marathons. And that was my understanding of what a marathon was. It was like, the, you know, in my mind, it was the New York City Marathon. Um, but an ultra marathon is any distance over marathon length. So anything above 26.2 miles is an ultra marathon. So 26.2 miles is the top for a marathon. Yes, that's the marathon distance, period. You know, they're always 26.2 miles, no matter where you go in the world. <clears throat> and 
<coughs> sorry, that's a right. <coughs> An ultra marathon is any distance above 26.2 miles. So the traditional ultra marathon lengths are 50 kilometers, which is about 31 and a half miles, <coughs> 50 miles, 100 kilometers or 62 miles, and then 100 miles. And believe it or not, there's actually an increasing number of 200 mile races. Holy moly. So it's a big jump up from the marathon. And many of them, I would say most, although there are some that are run on roads, are on trails. So they're on um, paths or technical trails. They're in the mountains, in the desert. So you're not running around a neighborhood or a city. You're in the wilderness. And for me, that was the huge draw, because as I said earlier, nature has always been this source of solace, inspiration to my creativity, and healing. And so I was drawn after my father died. You asked how I got through it, and initially, before I realized that running would be the thing that saved me, I had a, I had a lot of different healing modalities. I mean, I live in Santa Fe where there's incredible natural healers like on every street corner. And I'm a very open person and willing to try anything. And so I tried a lot of them. And some of them really helped and others less so. Um, you know, I went to somatics to learn about how trauma gets stored in our body. You know, that tingling feeling really is right. in your body. Acupuncture has been incredible for me. Um, that's been my constant. Other thing is not working as well, but I tried lots, right? And um, I stayed with the things that worked, but what really worked and what really fed me and gave me relief from that kind of cycle of anxiety was running into the mountains alone and being in motion in nature on my feet. So feeling the earth energy come up was really important. It's like it was revitalizing and reminding me that I'm connected to something greater than myself and something much vaster than my little worry reel in my mind, which wasn't to say that it wasn't real, right? Like it was real. My fears were real and <clears throat> legitimate and I wasn't discounting them, but being in nature, I felt connected to something much bigger and it just felt like it was a consolation. You know, that in nature, I would see a fox or I would see little mouse prints in the snow. <clears throat> and I went all seasons, you know, no matter the weather, I would go out into the trails. And it was the combination of being in nature, but also being in motion, running. And when you run, or if you're a physical person with a physical practice, whatever you do, you know, you get into that repetitive motion and it sort of becomes a moving meditation, like a form of almost hypnosis because you can just run on and, and your body knows what to do. And so your brain can let go. Mm -hmm. so I would find peace and my, I would find that my, my mind went a little quieter when I would run. Not always. I mean, I had hard days and many times I would start my run with this sort of every fear in my head. Like, oh my God, why does my, why do I have a pain like a toothpick in my chest? I'm going to have a heart attack or, you know, what is this feeling or that? But I find that after like 20 minutes or so. I'd have to fight through that urge to stop or turn around or lie down and cry or go back to my babies who were still so little, right, who needed me. And I would I'd sort of have to fight that urge to stop. And if I kept going, I would kind of break through. And then I would be in that more thought-free place, more meditative state. That's in itself is, is um, amazing. 
for people to hear in this interview talk about perseverance because you have that initial you start out in so many things in life and you say quit and you and you didn't which is so this leads me to my next question which is what was it like to run your very first marathon and what did you learn from that experience well um my very first marathon so if we're just being specific with the distance my first marathon was um the 26.2 mile distance which by the way from this listener is like amazing just all by itself <laughs> so i ran that that's a funny story i also tell in, in running home which is i met um an ultra marathon runner quite famous named dean carnassus and i because of my work for outside magazine they wanted me to interview him and i thought well of course i'm going to interview him while we're running that's just going to get the better story and so Long story short, I thought I would, would run five or six miles with Dean, and I started out with him, and it wasn't a race because he was doing 50 marathons in 50 states in 50 days, so it was like a random Saturday, and he, we'd mapped it. he'd mapped out a marathon distance, but you know, I had my tape recorder around my neck, and we were running at quite an easy pace because when you're running a marathon every day for 50 days, you're not like, you know, going out at Olympic pace. So we could talk and we just talked and talked and talked and it was so compelling and his story about how he himself got into ultra distance and he would go out and run a hundred miles overnight, you know, and like, it was so compelling that I, you know, went much farther than I thought. I thought I was going to do six miles. I ended up running the whole marathon with him accidentally. And the feeling was much like that feeling I had when I ran my first 10 K only like a much stronger was that oh my God, I just did something I didn't think I could do. And it's the lessons, right, will stick with me for a long time. And I learned from him, from Dean Carnassus. I asked him what his secret to running ultra distance. And he said, you're stronger than you think you are. And you can go farther than you think you can. And that, I mean, honestly, Irene, those words stuck with me. It would be another, I think, four years before I lost my father. So this running with Dean was, you know, in 2006, and I lost my dad in 2010. And those words just sort of, they stuck with me. I didn't think about them every day. I probably didn't think about them for years. But somehow, after my dad died, and I was struggling with the anxiety, and I was just in the trenches with it, his words came back to me. And I started, when I started running, I said, Katie, you're stronger than you think. You can go farther than you think. And those really became my guiding words as I got more serious about my running. And I kind of got through that initial triage period of grief. And I came out the other side. And then it was like I wanted to see what I could do and how far I really could go. And that's when I began racing and having a lot of success at that in those races. That's really a theme in your life, perseverance and and testing your limits and knowing that you can do it. Yeah. There are a lot of people, so many people quit before they know how much they're capable of. And it's going to be hard. And the hard is what actually makes it meaningful and deep and profound. I mean, you know, the suffering is part of it. It's part of the flow. Because if you quit too soon, you won't break through. And I think that goes for grief, right? Like, it's so you're in it. You can't see forward. I compare. <clears throat> sorry, I'm just gonna take a drink. You're entitled. Go for it. <laughs> <clears throat> um, 
you know, being in grief I can, is like running an ultra marathon because you don't know what's around the next corner. And it's like this deep fog, right? That's how grief felt to me, that I was in this bubble, this cocoon, and the outside world is going on and you're sort of sequestered from it and protected in, an, in a way that I think is, is biologically important, right? But like we're buffered. Mm-hmm. But it creates a sense of disconnect and that you're in your own little world and you can't see forward. And, and add to that having a baby, it was like this double bubble. And because um, ba- having a new baby, right, you're also in that timeless state, right? It's sort of beautiful. Like you're moving at a different speed than the rest of the world. I always tell my friends who are having babies or new mothers that like, you're going to kind of climb the walls and feel like you're going insane, but you will miss it. That feeling of being separate and moving in a, in, in a different way in time. But so grief, I didn't, I couldn't see forward. And I, ne- it was never premeditated. It's important to say, like, I never thought like, well, my dad's dying and then he died. And now I'm in anxiety and I'm going to heal myself by running. And then I'm going to write a book. <clears throat> I never thought that right. Like, you don't think that way in, your, in grief. You're just trying to literally, you know, it sounds like a cliche, but with running, it's like you just have to put one foot in front of the other. And that's what I was doing. And I just trusted because I was listening to my intuition that running would save me. It didn't make sense on paper. I mean, I was afraid I was dying. And so the last thing that would have made sense was me to go out alone into the, into the wilderness. I mean, the mountains here in Santa Fe are, go up to 12,000 feet. There's wild animals. You know, so it didn't make sense, but intuitively I knew it was right. And so being in that grief state enabled me to hear that intuition because I was sort of all the other stuff was tuned out. And, and so I was just following my gut that, that it would help me. And um, same thing with running. Like you just don't know what's around the corner. You can be as well prepared as possible for an ultra marathon, but like life and grief, there are so many variables and factors that you'll never be able to predict what's going to happen. And I, that's why running, and especially ultra running, is such a great metaphor for life because you, you don't know what's going to happen. You just have to stick with it. Well, that answers my next question, I think, which was, what are the compelling parallels between grieving and ultra distance runs? Do you, you want to add anything to that? I mean, um, you just have to show up for yourself, right? And so grief is like, um, with running, you know, you want to make steady effort. You don't have to know where you're going. Same with grief. You don't know where you're going to end up, but trust that if you're showing up for yourself every day, which in grief means caring for yourself, right? Doing those things that feed you even in the littlest ways, right? And, and they don't have to make sense. I mean, there was this scene in my book that this moment that's especially dear to me because it has my husband in it who's very like an incredible he's the biggest heart and he's so patient he sounds like an angel he's amazing he sounds he, like an angel he's hilarious too but you know there was this one and he we give each other we've always given each other a lot of freedom in the out you know being in our adventurous lives and doing the things that really bring us to life and but so he but even for him like one day he just looked at me and he was like what is all this running about it was just getting impatient. Like, what is this for? And I just turned on and I said, I don't know, but I know that it's more than about running. And that's all I could say, right? Is that feeling of like, I don't know why I'm doing it, but I know that it's something important. And I would just say that that's, you know, for your listeners, like when you're in grief and you really don't know what you're doing or where you're going or how you'll end up, 
just make that little effort every day for yourself. I call it sort of steady effort, right? Because um, not knowing where you're going is, a, is, I mean, we really all live in that. Oh, we think we know where we're going, but grief and death and loss shocks you out of it. So you see like, oh, right, it's an illusion all the time, right? right. Anything can happen, as you well know, that can turn it upside down. And so it's not to say you should be passive and just let life happen to you at all and just be in the not knowing. What I'm saying is it's okay not to know, but at the same time, you want to be making little steps every day in whatever direction. And, you know, if it's just your intuition saying, hey, go to this yoga class or go outside for a walk or call your friend, do those things. Look yeah. So you've touched on intuition, you've touched on running, but my next question is about, and you've touched on the healing power of nature to heal your grief. Um, would you like to add anything to how running, writing, mindfulness, intuition, and the healing power of nature helped you with your grief? Sure. We haven't really talked about mindfulness, and this is something that's come to me. Um, it came to me in my grief. Um, I met a wonderful person who became a dear friend, and I um, had an intuitive feeling about her when I first saw her. She's a Zen teacher and a mindfulness um, practitioner and an incredible writing teacher and writer herself. Her name's Natalie Goldberg. She's written 15 or 16 books, you know, and her book, Writing Down the Bones, was an international bestseller. She's, a, you know, a legend and an icon, and she happens to live in Santa Fe. And... Um, about maybe like three or four months before my father died, I saw her walking down the street in that sort of very contemplative, mindful way. And I just had this feeling like, oh, I'm going to be friends with her. And, um, you know, flash forward a few months and um, I had a new baby. I didn't yet know my father was dying. And I saw her on the trail. And um, I had been wanting to take one of her writing workshops. And when I saw her on the trail, we had this funny little exchange and I went home and I was like, that's my sign to sign up for this retreat with Natalie. And um, you'll never believe it, but the day the retreat started, which was like two months after that, was the day literally I discovered my dad had cancer. Wow. I had just gotten the call from him um, with the terrible news and I went to the retreat and there was Natalie and we became friends. And we began hiking together. And so I had my new baby and we would hike up our mountain. I call it our mountain, but we, I would hike up this little mountain with her once a week. And she really taught me about uh, meditation. And I, um, I knew that being still was a component to healing, just as I knew that running, that running was my main vehicle for healing, but that I also needed stillness to help quiet my mind, that the running helped me do it, but that sitting still would also, I mean, there's so many studies about how meditation and mindfulness can help you with anxiety and grief. And, and so I just dip my toes in very, you know, little bit here and there. And Natalie would sort of transmit this like ancient wisdom to me, like directly from the Buddha, it felt like. Oh, and, I, and I would just take it in. And most of it, I didn't understand on an intellectual level, but it went into my body. But energetically, you were absorbing it. I was absorbing it. I w and I knew that it would be important to me. And um, I sort of just put it inside of me without really needing to know what it was or why. And I think that's a great 
thing. Like it's the same thing when I heard Dean's words, I knew they would be important to me, but they didn't have to be important that minute, right? It's patience too. It's like letting things percolate and marinate inside of you and knowing that they'll come out at some point in a way that's meaningful. And so I began to just do tiny little sitting practice, meditation and work. You know, I would do like two minutes and I would go to some meditation retreats and, um, you know, it was hard to sit still. I was very antsy. I felt I've always been happiest in motion, but little by little by little, I built up, um, you know, some experience with it. And what I learned is that, you know, in meditation, they say, people think that you have to like empty your mind of thoughts and that's not it. Like you're always going to have the thoughts, but the trick is, is to see them coming and let them pass like clouds and not again being the observer sort of like your dad being that's a great connection right observe them oh here's a thought and i'm going to let it go i'm not going to get hooked on to this thought that this pain in my elbow is a tumor right and so it helped me with my grief helps me in running too because in running, you have lots of sensations come up. Like, I wonder what that thing is in my ankle. Well, I'm going to just not attach to it right now and make a story around it. I'll come back to it in three or four miles if it's still feeling like something. Mm -hmm. And so I, I trained my mind to like not always go down the rabbit hole. Sometimes you just do, right? Sometimes you just get in that loop and you just, but the sitting helped me. And so, um, you know, just to sort of summarize like the meditation, has been a huge part of my healing, even though I don't sit for like 20 or 40 minutes every day, but I do. All right, so with all that goes on in your life, do you take time every day to walk and meditate or sit on a cushion yeah. or, and, and do you do it for a long time or? or well, that's a, yeah, that's a great question. So it's really evolved. And I would say that like in the last two years or two or three years, it's become a much deeper practice for me. So now I'm daily and um, I range from like 10 to 15 minutes a day. And not, you know, I do miss days and I'll, sometimes I'll miss a couple of weeks and then I'll know I really feel off centered. Um, but it's really like, it's so integral to my process as a writer, as a competitive athlete, right? I do think I never use my meditation toward an end. Like it's not for a goal because that is actually counter to the spirit of Zen, which is the tradition in which I practice. But, um, it, it, it builds this strength inside of me that I know translates to both my running and my writing and that sense of that anything is possible, right? And being able to transcend these limits and sort of tap into this greater flow state that I have experienced um, really comes from that Zen practice. And so um, I am getting more serious about it. And I feel even in this next year that I'm shifting into a deeper practice as well. Do you just silence your mind and, 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 or do you do guided meditation? Or I don't there? do guided. Um, I sit, um, I sit by myself and my, my practice is usually to sit outside as you would expect probably from me having heard my story, but I do, I'll sit beside the river. I'll like, I'll bike my kids to school and then I go to the little spot by the river and I'll sit or I'll sit up on top of my mountain. I do sit inside. And just this week I've started sitting more with the community at the local Zen center. And um, that's something I feel like I've been approaching on and off for 10 years since I first met Natalie. And now it's finally kind of coming into a, a, like a more clearer form for me. But that's again, another example of sort of being patient and trusting that if you're 
on your path that you'll kind of come to where you need to be when you need to be there. It's so true. Can you uh, share with us your inspiring Evan flow story that begins with a rafting accident prior to winning your first hundred mile race? In spite of having been told to never run a long distance again, I think I would have not done that. And here you went and did that. Well, okay. So this is sort of all, um, this is kind of like the heart and soul of my next book that I'm working on, but it's um, this story of how um, I, my husband and I were having our 10th anniversary um, and we went up to Idaho to do a river trip and we love rivers and we've always like, we're big into nature and we do a lot of river trips and we were on this river, the middle fork of the salmon and just in this fluke accident flipped our raft. And I, we've, you know, both fell out of the boat and I broke my leg when I fell out and I didn't know it was broken. Right. So I obviously have quite a high pain tolerance. <laughs> And, um, but I was hoping it was, I knew it was really hurt, but I was hoping it was soft tissue or something. But anyway, long story short, I stayed on the river. It's a six day trip. We are in the wilderness to get out would have required like an emergency wow. evacuation. Girl. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so anyway, we get out and I, um, we drive back to Santa Fe 16 hours and I go to the doctor and he x-rays me and I'm just knocked over when he tells me that I've broken my leg and I'm going to need surgery. So I have the surgery and the, and the surgeon, you know, just, you know, quite dismissively um, was just like, you're going to have to find another hobby. Like you should never run again. And that was just a huge blow on so many levels because running is not a hobby, right? It's how I've healed myself. It's how I, it's my expression. It's a form of deep, true personal expression, both just from my spirit, but also as a writer. So there's, you know, running um, isn't just a sport for me, and it's definitely not just a hobby. And so that just knocked me over. And I, um, I had to call him back afterwards before he did the surgery and just set him and just you know tell it straight and just say explain who I you know what I was and, and why it was so deep to me. And it's like you did that, that's fantastic. A lot was, of people would just accept it and just be aggravated yeah. by it. And I was deep in me, this trauma that, that he set off when he said that. And I, I know he didn't mean that, but um, he didn't know my story. And I don't mean that by like, he didn't know who I was, that I was, I won all these races. Well, but he made assumptions. And so I called him and I just said, like, this is what it is to me and what running is. And um, he listened and he said, you know, this doesn't change at all how I'm going to do the surgery. I'm still going to do the best job. And I was going to do the best job I could anyway but thank you for telling me this. And somehow by stepping into my own voice and my own power, maybe in that moment, I reclaimed my story. And so I was 14 weeks without being able to walk. I was on crutches, so obviously no running um, and had to find different ways to access that creative flow inside. It was a very important lesson, I think, that I could find those flow states without running but it took me a little while and there was a lot of resistance inside. And, but then, you know, I got off my crutches um, a few months later, I tried running. It felt okay. The voice of him was deep in my body though, right? The fear. And um, any day that my knee would hurt, his voice was in my knee, you know, and I just joke that the doctor lived in my knee for a long time. But I did have to have that moment where I was like, I just said to myself, Katie, that is his story but that does not have to be yours. And I just, that's so smart. It, 
it, it just came to it because I just felt like I was taking on his story and that wasn't necessarily going to be mine. And um, so then I started running long distances again. I worked back up to, you know, 30 miles, 50 miles, and I signed up for my first hundred mile race. And my only goal was to finish really. And um, because of that, because I was not fixed on winning or trying to prove myself in that sort of Zen way, I did not have a gaining idea. I did. I was not focused on the result. I was just trying to make everyday progress toward the end, you know, toward being able to run a hundred miles. I was, went into the race with this incredible gratitude that I was even healthy enough to show up at the starting line. A lot of humility too, which I think, you know, is part of the flow state and accessing that flow state is giving yourself over to these, something bigger. And um, anyway, I went into that race and I just had this, I mean, it was 20 hours of being in this prolonged flow state. It wasn't that it felt easy, but it just felt natural. And I felt like everything was aligning for me and I won the race, which is one of the biggest. That's amazing coming out of that injury and everything. Yeah. Yep. Does your doctor know what you accomplished? Uh, someone, a friend of mine told him and he laughed and I don't know if it was a, if it was like a nice laugh or <laughs> I don't know, but um, yeah. So it was um, this, you know, and everything aligned for me as a writer, a runner, a mother, like on that day. And um, you know, just, teaching me about that flow state and how when you let go of a certain result and you just make effort every day for training or whatever you're you know, working toward, then you're free on that day. On the race day, I just went in and I had this feeling that no matter what happens, it's going to be a celebration of all the work I put in. And that was so in, I ran in that spirit and I know that that's what. That's amazing. So how do you suggest the rest of us who aren't runners <laughs> Find that flow during those up times. And you have a message about the importance of healing to share with our listeners? Yeah, the, the flow is so important. And what I've learned since then, right? So that was a peak experience of flow. But I've also, I've learned since then that the ebbs are part of flow, right? And that you need the low to reach the highs. And it's sort of that, um, <clears throat> just the eddies, I call them eddies, which are those moments when you're on a river, when you're sort of swirling and you don't know where you're going those are very generative times. So I would just say to people like, don't fight the times that feel very sticky or um, unproductive or where you feel lost. Like things are building in you, whether you know it or not. Right. And so what I would say to do is just be mindful of those times and be easy on yourself. Like don't, doesn't mean like just sit on the couch and don't do anything. Make that steady effort every day to, to do something that moves you or uplifts you or gives you just a tiny spark of joy or contentment or just that little feeling of being alive. So do those things and they will add up, right? So um, trust that if, you're, if you stay with those, in those ebb times, that they will lead you into flow. And my other practices, of course, are sitting, meditation. You can do it guided. I don't, but because I, I, when I don't like it when someone's talking in my ear, but, you know, any kind of sitting or mindfulness practice will help. That could just be walking in nature, too, is mindfulness and being an observer, taking it back to my dad, aware of your world, like awake in your world to the details. You know, just this morning, I saw this man, he had a sign and he said, struggling every day to stay alive. Wow. 
And his message, I just went right to my heart. And I had to make a U-turn. This was on my way to do this interview with you. I had to make a U-turn. I had a dollar bill scrunched up on the floor of my car and a half-eaten bag of cashews. And I just made a U-turn. And his message, because I was paying attention, struck me in my heart, right? And now his story is part of mine. And I just gave him that. And I said, this is all I have. But, you know, I think in those abs, right, like helping others, um, doing, you know, being, staying in your body, staying in motion, just walking. You don't have to do anything epic. You do not have to run. I tell everyone I talk to about my book that my journey is with running. That was my vehicle and what helped me. But you really could write, you know, cross out every time I could write running in my book, you could write your own thing, right? It's really the same. And so stay with yourself in the ebbs and trust that they are leading you to flow. It's a hard thing to trust. I'm a little bit in that myself right now. Um, and so my book is my own, is my own teacher right now, which is good. Well, you know, it's so, um, so many people, and I tended to do this too, if they're going through an ebb, they feel in a black and white way that this is it. Instead of understanding that this is just something that's going to lead me. I should keep going yeah, it's and it's going to lead me out. And that's part of the healing. If you can find your modality, I would think to help you with that, ebb, you can, you can move through whatever it is to higher ground. So definitely. definitely. And, and it just made little steady effort. And in, in Zen, they say steady effort for the good. Just do the, the little bit you can, because there are definitely going to be days where you feel like you cannot scrape yourself off the couch. And I've had that. I've had days where I literally had to lie down on the ground on a tree, on a run. And I felt like I couldn't go home. And I just would lie. I just lay there. And I felt the ground. That was almost like I could feel the earth spinning beneath me. And I was like, okay, I'm here. And um, just keep going. Keep going. Well, tell us about keeping going. I know that you inspire other people to get into the flow. You have what's called flow retreats mm -hmm. and you help. And so tell us about that because you help others to find that flow. In their yeah. life. So if any of you out there are stuck, you can um, definitely reach out to Katie. Yeah. And so, maybe you want to take a part of this. Go ahead. Yeah. So I offer, I'm offering a couple of this spring. One is sort of flow running and writing. So I look at that intersection between like, our creative minds and our physical bodies. And I, I really believe that whether or not you're a creative person or a physical person, like you need, you need both practices. I think all physical people need a creative practice that like feeds us, whether it's writing. And, and I don't mean like in a professional way, you don't ever have to publish anything or sell a piece of art, but having that creative expression is a deeper way to be in the world and a deeper relationship with both the world and ourselves and our creativity. And same thing with artists or entrepreneurs or anyone. I think we all are healthier when we have a physical practice. And again, that doesn't mean you have to be an elite ultra runner, right? It could just mean walking a mile every day. And so at this flow retreat, I'm looking at that intersection between the creative and the physical or the imagination and the body and sort of how would you get both of those things firing, you can sort of prime yourself for flow. You can't force flow, right? That's the opposite of flow. And, but you can create these daily habits that help, you know, 
put you and cultivate and develop flow in your life and enable you to trust that the flow is coming even when you're in the ebb. And so what we'll be doing are, you know, writing practices daily and sitting meditation. Again, nothing like Olympian. You don't have to be a professional meditator, right? If anyone can meditate, it's me, like the restless ultra runner. So, and then we'll be doing trail running or if running is not your thing, you can also come, we walk, but it's that time in nature. And then, so that's in February outside Zion National Park on the last couple of days. Of wow. February. Oh, Zion. That's beautiful. Zion is a very powerful place. And, yeah. you know, landscape is so powerful to me and I know to other people. And I think we, many of us get disconnected from the natural world. So that's February 28th outside Zion. I love that symbolically because it's over leap weekend, leap day. And I love leap day for what it, you know, the big leaps forward we can make. That's then, cool. And the second one is more of a writing and walking retreat. It's not running focused, but it's at the Santa Fe Photographic Workshops. They have a writer's lab here in Santa Fe. And the Santa Fe Photo Workshops are a renowned workshop for photographers and artists. And um, I'm teaching there. It's called Writing in Motion. And so if you're ever curious about how being um, you know, in motion, in movement, how that feeds your creativity, this is a great workshop. And um, you can find all the info on my website, katiearnold.net. Um, Katie, I would imagine some people make wonderful friendships also. Yes. Oh, absolutely. That must be so cool. Coming together and sort of just, we're just exploring like how when we move our bodies, we move our minds. And there's so many studies about it, but I think what gets lost, is, especially with writers, you know, wherever you are on the writing journey, all writers are welcome. And people, people say to me, well, I'm not a real runner or I'm not a real writer. And that always, I always stop them. And I say, if you run any distance, any speed, any amount of time, you're a runner. And if you write in any way, you don't have to write for publication, you're a writer, right? And so we're exploring those two, um, two things, being in motion and being creative person, which we all are. And we all need those things in our life. Uh, it sounds wonderful. So I'm going to give you another chance to tell our readers all the ways they can find Katie Arnold Great. for the flow shops to get her book to uh, for all the wonderful things who she is and all the wonderful things she can help you to yes. resonate with. Go ahead. Irene, you, um, everyone listening can find me on my website, www.katiearnold.net. Um, that has my retreat schedule info. Um, you can sign up for my newsletter, which I send out, you know, a couple times a month. Um, I just sent one out today. You can follow me, please, on Instagram. I'm very active on Instagram, and that's at Katie Arnold. Um, on Facebook, I'm Katie Arnold, author, athlete. And on Twitter, I'm at Raising Rippers. That's Raising, R-A-I-S-I-N-G, Rippers, R-I-P-P-E-R-S. Um, that's the name of the column I launched for Outside Magazine. And um, so I'm active on all three. And um, what else am I forgetting? You can buy my book. On and where's her book, everyone? I own. just read her book, by the way. I read it and I loved it. It's spellbinding, everyone. Oh, spellbinding. I love that. Um, and my book is available, obviously, online at Amazon. Also, Random House. It's published by Random House. Um, you can find it as an audiobook, and I narrated it, which was really exciting and also sort of a deep Zen practice. Um, and um, it's also on, available on Kindle or ebook and hardcover. 
Um, and, and please support your local bookstores, though. We need bookstores in our communities. And I'm such an avid reader, and I only buy my books um, at stores. So I encourage you, if your local bookstore does not have it, they'll be happy to order it. That's great. And Katie, of all people in this universe, tell us, what is your tip for finding joy in life? Oh my gosh, I, my tip for finding joy in life is just do what moves you every day. And, do, and when I say moves you, I mean literally, like what gets you up out of your chair? And preferably make it outside, right? We are so healed by being in the elements, in nature, whatever the weather, meet the weather where it is, and just move outside and do what moves you and, and be in nature. That's great. Katie. I know you have touched many hearts and minds on Grief and Rebirth podcast today, and you have also inspired our listeners who are passionate about running. I want to thank you for this wonderful interview. Thank you so and much. I, oh, you're welcome. And I'd also like to share the following profound quote from your book, Running Home, with our listeners. Keep it flowing, and the energy will carry you onward and upward again flying down the far side. Don't stop. Keep going. Keep rolling through. One after the next, the hills will carry you home. In the spirit of onward and upward, here's a reminder, everyone, that Grief and Rebirth podcast is your home for interviews filled with comfort, enlightenment, and inspiration. You can see the full show notes and all Grief and Rebirth podcast episodes on IreneWeinberg.com and make sure to follow us and like us on social at, at Irene S. Weinberg on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Thanks again for joining us today. And as I like to say, to be continued. Bye for now. Thank you, Irene. That was wonderful. Thank you. Hold.